Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, what a week it's been in politics. All sorts of messes going on. And so we're talking to Malcolm Father, National Political Editor for News.com.au about all that. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, updates us on the markets, which obviously had a conniption last week and settled down this week. Callum Pickering, APAC Economist at Indeed.com, talks about the jobs data. And Chris Duckett, editor of ZDNet, tells me what's going on with Telstra and the NBN, as well as the government's anti-encryption legislation. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Now here's Malcolm Farr, the National Political Editor for news.com.au. Well, Malcolm, I keep reading about it's being exploding cigar politics and uh, it's really hard to see it as otherwise, particularly this stuff uh, about uh, Pauline Hanson's Senate motion about it's okay to be white. I mean, what an absolute debacle that was. It's been a week of self-inflicted wounds for the government and the timing just before the Wentworth by-election is excruciatingly cruel. You're right. The the idea that uh, the government would support a Hanson motion uh, almost mindlessly is very difficult to grapple with. We all know that whenever Pauline Hanson sticks her head up, it's usually to have something nasty to say. It's usually simply to enhance her profile within a small constituency, and it's usually going to be a waste of parliamentary time and and taxpayer uh, funds. Uh, And that's what happened with this it's okay to be white motion of hers, which is just ludicrous and and quite nasty because of its association with certain white supremacist groups. And there was the government just uh, rolling in robotically raising the hand and rolling out without giving it a thought. It was a massive collapse in, in discipline and, uh, uh, and procedure. Well, it, actually, it seemed to me to display the, um, the coalition's discipline in a way. I mean, it's one thing to say that there, <laughs> yes. that there was – well, it's one thing to say that there was a stuff up in, in Christian Porter's office, the Attorney General's office, uh, when they, they put out a voting sheet to – to go in favour of it, but then all the all the senators obeyed it, presumably thinking and knowing that it was a disaster. Well, well, you're right. They did do what they were told, and that's the epitome of discipline, isn't it? You know, walking, you know, jumping over the over the trench into the enemy's fire. But uh, I, I was referring, I was hoping to refer more to discipline at the upper ranks, uh, the officer yes. rank. The, 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 uh, as you say, the Attorney General Christian Porter, I don't know what's going on in his office. Um, poor old Senate leader, uh, Matthias Corman, uh, uh, he wasn't uh, actually involved in the vote, but uh, he obviously was out of the loop or, or wasn't watching things properly. There were six ministers who voted uh, on that motion and that sad, uh, that sad division. Uh, and uh, one of them should have said, hang on, what's this? Why are we doing this? The motion had been around for 25 days. It wasn't as if it had snuck up on anybody. Everybody knew what, what it was by its wording and by its nature. Uh, and still, uh, as you say, you're right. But, uh, strictly disciplined troops, they just rolled in uh, and stood in front of the cannon. And just to, to conclude on this subject, uh, uh, yet another 
Liberal National Party ministerial staffer uh, or or two have been thrown under the bus. I know it's uh, they're running out of uh, they're running out of staff up up there, aren't they? Uh, uh, given Macalia Cash's uh, contribution to the uh, um, the ex staff members uh, association uh, and others, yeah. But well, you know, to be fair, Porter and, and Corman uh, said the buck stops with us, but they did explain their predicament. Uh, uh, via the uh, uh, the the shoddy work of uh, of staff members, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a tough life, as, as you would know. But uh, um, staff members have to uh, wear it occasionally. But really, uh, it's not their fault. It's the ministers who should have been uh, on top of things. So, do you think that Karen Phelps is a chance to win the um, Wentworth by-election? It's going to be a fascinating game of preferences, isn't it? Uh, and it depends who comes second. It depends on how large the Liberal primary vote will be. Uh, and uh, look, if you had a florin in your pocket and you were walking past your local turf accountant, you would put that uh, that coin on uh, 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 David Sharma uh, winning the Liberal candidate. But who knows? Who knows what the Phelps preferences will do? Uh, should she uh, come third, but uh, then again, what will Labor do? Uh, what, where will Labor preferences go? Should uh, Mr Murray, the Labor candidate, uh, come third? Uh, presumably, they would go to uh, a Dr Phelps. Uh, and if the, the Liberal primary vote is excruciatingly low, uh, then it could see an independent uh, elected. And what would that do, do you think? I mean, uh, it would not necessarily trigger the fall of the government immediately, but it um, certainly would make life more difficult, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, and it, it, it would. I mean, if it was uh, even Stephen uh, in the House of Representatives, then uh, the Speaker, Tony Smith, would have a casting vote. That's unlikely because it would require all six independents to vote with Labor uh, on an issue, you know, a serious uh, matter. Bob Catter's not likely to do that. But it would reflect on Scott Morrison's leadership, uh, and uh, it, it would it would mean um, that the, the government can't be particularly bold as it goes into the election year 2019. Uh, it, it has to um, has to tamper down uh, expectations and and uh, and daring because it just can't afford to miss anything. And just finally, leaving aside the sort of the exploding cigars and everything, which I know are hard to leave aside, but um, uh, how do you think Scott Morrison's going? I, I was impressed uh, in his first few weeks because he was so busy. He, he was uh, he was a non-stop uh, uh, character on the political field, visiting a lot of people, raising a lot of issues uh, and doing a lot of interviews. And, and, and he was like, one thing that struck me is he was like John Howard in one way. John Howard never did an interview in which he didn't have something to say, uh, whereas sometimes uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull turned up and you weren't quite sure why he was there. Um, but uh, Scott Morrison seemed to have a, a coherent idea of what he wanted to do and how to do it. But then uh, this whole stack of uh, this accumulation of self-inflicted runes distracted from the message he was trying to get through. Speaking of which, uh, Peter Costello very handily entered the uh, entered the debate by, by essentially saying he had no idea what the government was up to because it didn't have a narrative on its economic policy. Um, 
Scott Morrison is a marketing man, as, as someone has pointed out rather strongly. So you could expect him to uh, be pretty well equipped for that sort of uh, getting to know you period, so-called honeymoon period after he got uh, the prime ministership. But it's the follow through that, that uh, in which he's been let down a bit more by his colleagues than by himself, but it's, it's his responsibility. He's going to have to pull out of it. We'll see what happens in Wentworth, but you've got to remember that uh, voters, when they go on holidays, summer holidays, they have a particular impression of the government and they, that impression doesn't move through all those holidays. So the government has got to uh, uh, be pretty quick on its feet to make sure that voters have a higher opinion of it than they do now before they head off to the beach. Do you think he talks too much? He talks a lot, doesn't he? Uh, and as I say, I, I was first impressed by the fact that when he did talk, he had something to say, you know, drought uh, uh, and all sorts of other matters. Um, I don't know if he talks too much. You might think he's around a lot. Uh, he, he's picked up Malcolm Turnbull's uh, routine of, of uh, appearing on those FM stations, you know, where they seem to have a crew called, you know, uh, Stinky, Watsits and, and Jono. Or, uh, all, the, all the interviewers seem to have those sort of names. Uh, and, and, and which is a good idea because they, they, they have a constituency listening to it. They're just entitled to hear from the Prime Minister. But uh, you just wonder if, if he's not spreading himself too too thin, uh, thinly, and he might just concentrate on the big issues uh, and prevent uh, the self-inflicted wounding. Thanks, Malcolm. Pleasure, sir. I'm joined now by Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Well, Shane, last Friday you put out a note talking about the pullback in shares, which obviously was still apparently underway then, saying that everyone, and you concluded in the note, saying everyone should just chill out and uh, take it easy. Sometimes it's best to turn down the noise, you said. Easier said than done. But you were dead right. I mean, the thing, that it turned out to be not a correction at all, in fact, which if you define a correction at 10%. Yeah, it, uh, it did come down very sharply. In fact, it came down more sharply than we saw back in February this year. And to the low point, uh, the Australian share market managed to get to a low of 8% down from its high, which was in late August. So it's quite a sharp pullback. But I kind of thought unless we're going to see a major economic downturn in the US, a recession, then this would probably be a correction um, rather than a, a, a major bear market. And so far, so good. I think the evidence is consistent with it being well, it doesn't meet the traditional definition of a correction yet, but it's it's more like a correction than a than a bear market. History tells us that to get a major bear market, that's where the share market comes down 20%, and a year later you're even down another 20%, like we saw at the time of the GFC, is that you really need to have some sort of recession in the US. And at this stage, I still can't see that. I think somewhere out there there will be a problem. Um, I was thinking around 2020, but I get kind of worried that everyone else is saying the same thing, so maybe it could be 2021. But somewhere out there, there will be a problem, but I don't think we're there yet, and therefore I think we're still in the midst of a bull market, albeit it's getting more constrained in terms of its rate of return, and it's getting more volatile. And so, uh, although I'm still a bit uh, cautious in saying we've seen the low for sure, 
we could still see a bit more volatility. So I won't rule out another another leg lower. But I, I do think it was really just a a bit of a pullback correction in a in a broad rising trend. I saw a chart yesterday from Merrill Lynch, which I put on the ABC News, uh, showing a survey of fund managers about whether we are late cycle or mid cycle. And um, according to the survey, 90% of fund managers are saying that we're late cycle, uh, which is more than or a larger proportion than um, 2007 uh, before the GFC. So I wonder, if you, are you in that 90%? Well, we have been saying late cycle as well, but it does get me a little bit nervous. I mean, there's good and bad in that uh, survey result. On the one hand, it tells you that fund managers are a lot more cautious than they were in 2007. So arguably, that's a good thing. Um, On the other hand, though, if you're thinking in terms of what might actually happen, you might say the fact that 90% of us, including ourselves, including me, are in that camp saying it's late cycle, then we could be premature because the consensus is often wrong. And the reason I kind of wonder about that is you say it's late cycle because, well, we've used up a lot of the spare capacity globally. The US has very, very low unemployment, the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. Wages growth is starting to edge up. The Fed's been raising rates now for a few years um, and sooner or later we'll, we'll go into restrictive territory in terms of US interest rates. So there's a bunch of things telling us we are late cycle. It's certainly not mid cycle or early cycle. Um, but against that, though, you could argue, well, you know, we haven't seen anything like the um, excessive level of investment that we saw prior to the tech wreck in, obviously, technology investment back then or housing investment that we saw prior to the GFC. We haven't seen wages growth yet pick up to a point where it causes the Fed to slam on the brakes. If you look at capacity utilisation in the US, US manufacturing industrial sector, it's still below the levels that preceded recessions in the past. Um, and so a lot of, and, and we don't sort of have that general economic euphoria that you have that normally precedes, precedes an economic downturn. Um, so that makes me think, well, we probably are some sort of late cycle, but this late cycle could sort of drift on for a while yet. Um, and that's why I'm sort of thinking, well, I was thinking, well, maybe 2020 would see the, the next US recession, but it could well be pushed out into 2021. So just because people are saying it's late cycle doesn't mean that this late cycle phase can't go on for a lot longer and we end up getting surprised um, at the extent to which the US economy continues to grow and therefore the global economy. One of the characteristics of, of late cycle markets is supposedly uh, more volatility. Um, and naturally what's happened is that in the past week or two, we've seen the big spike in volatility with the decline, you know, the, the correction last week. Uh, and everyone's gone, aha, see, it's late cycle, therefore more volatility. But actually, if you look at the VIX indexes, both Australian and US, over a longer period of time than, you know, just the last week or two, volatility is still kind of on average low. Um, and, uh, you know, this week it seems to be um, being low again. That's right. It, it is still relatively low in a long-term context. And it is worth looking at these things in a long-term sense. And if you look at the period last uh, decade, you know, that, that bull market in shares that went from about 2003 up to 2007, uh, there was a lengthy period there where volatility stayed low, but you get occasional spikes higher. Um, I, I recall for some reason mid-2006, there's seen quite a lot of volatility uh, in share markets and there was quite a, a severe pull, significant pullback in our share market at that time. But of course, that wasn't the penultimate peak. We did go on for quite a lot longer. So the fact that volatility is starting to creep back in after 
being very, very low through last year is a sign that we're getting later in the cycle, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're at the end of it. The, the other One of the other indicators I like to look at is the spread between the yields on, say, junk bonds and uh, government bonds or investment-grade bonds and government bonds, um, and that's also a sign of... Um, volatility or, or potential nervousness amongst investors. And through this recent pickup in, in volatility in fallen share markets, those spreads have remained relatively low. In other words, suggesting that uh, credit-based investors aren't that, that concerned about things, um, which is also something similar to what you saw through the middle of last decade, that uh, credit spreads remain relatively low. It was only when you get to 2007 they started to spike a lot higher um, but you can go through a lengthy period there where share market share markets do go through these occasional corrections like we've seen in the last week or so, if you call it that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the peak in the cycle. No, indeed. Well, thanks very much, Shane. Great to talk to you, as always. It's been my pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having me on the program. Here's Callum Pickering, APEC economist for Indeed.com, to talk about today's jobs figures. Well, Callum, the newspaper headlines are that the unemployment rate has fallen from 53 to 5%, but the ABS media release led off with the fact the trend unemployment stayed at 5.2%. So firstly, can you explain the difference between seasonally adjusted, which is the 53 to 5 and trend? What are the two... Uh, calculations? Uh, so the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate effectively adjusts for seasonal fluctuations. So for example, at various times of the year, the unemployment rate may be naturally higher or lower um, due to certain seasonal factors. For example, Christmas happens and a lot of people get employed and that might push the unemployment rate down. Um, what the trend measure does is it takes these seasonally adjusted figures and it basically smooths them out because what the ABS finds is that these seasonally adjusted figures are extremely volatile from month to month. They jump around and they can be difficult to interpret um, on a monthly basis. So what they say is it's better for everyone to focus on these trend estimates, which tend to be quite smooth, that tend to move quite slowly. And that's precisely what we see um, with this September Data, a big fall in the seasonally adjusted figures from 5.3 to 5%. Um, but the trend figures um, declined more modestly, um, staying at around 5.2%. Now, I noticed. So, so the question is, I guess, what is Australia's unemployment rate? Um, is it 5? Is it 5.2? Because I note that you, in your little release that you just sent out, uh, said that the 5% figure is too good to be true. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I tend to think that it is. Um, history shows that when there is big movement in the unemployment rate, um, it tends to sort of bounce back in the, the months that follow. I would anticipate that in October and, and November, when that data comes out, that the unemployment rate might jump back to 5.1 or 5.2%. Um, I would expect it to sort of converge with what the trend is telling us. Um, and... Look, the ABS agrees, the RBA agrees, most economists agree that the trend estimate provides a better indication of what's going on in the labour market. So I think 5.2% is probably the right number right now. 
So employment rose just 5,600 in September, which was both well short of both market expectations and last month, which was, I think, 44,000. So uh, a huge drop in employment. But one thing surprised me about the ABS release, that they seem to be saying that that figure of 5,600 is a net of 300-odd thousand in and 300,000 out. That's amazing. Yeah, that's right. Um, So on a month-to-month basis, we tend to see small movements in net employment, but there is a lot going on under the hood. There's a lot of flows into jobs and a lot of flows out of jobs. Um, And that's precisely what we see in September, 300,000 people in, 300,000 people out. Um, And that's generally a good thing. That means that labour mobility is high. That means that there's lots of new opportunities um, being created each and every month. Um, And that's ultimately good for for job seekers. I wonder if it means that 300,000 people got the sack. Oh, I don't think it necessarily means that 300,000 people got the sack. I think uh, most of those people would have moved on uh, for their own reasons, um, hopefully for new opportunities in, in higher-paid um, jobs. Um, yeah, but anyway, so we don't know anyway. <laughs> so, what, well, so what state in general, what state do you think the labour market is in? Well, the labour market continues to gradually improve. That's what the trend estimates seem to suggest. Um, labour market slack still remains quite high across Australia. Broader measures of the unemployment rate um, are still quite elevated. You look at the un- underutilisation rate, for example, it's still at 13.5%. So there's still a, a long way to go before we can declare that the labour market is, is tight, for example. Um, and we've still got a long way to go before um, the level of unemployment begins to put upward pressure on wages as well. So we've made a lot of progress, um, but there's still a a great deal of progress still to be made. Thanks, Callum. Thanks, Alan. I'm joined now by Chris Duckett, who's the Australian editor of the CBS-owned ZDNet. Well, Chris, uh, what did you think of Andy Penn? wanting to chop the uh, price that uh, in the wholesale price that NBN is charging uh, by $20, um, I think, rather than putting it up from 44 to 51 which is what's intended. Do you think that's even uh, remotely possible? It's probably not possible in the current reality that we have with the NBN. I mean, you're talking about a piece of national infrastructure that has to produce a commercial return. And this has been built into the NBN from the day that Kevin Rudd and Stephen Conroy announced it. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of a bind at the moment because MBN did all these specials uh, in the second half of this year, basically to get people up onto higher plans and now the discounts are ending and it's sort of like pulling a rug out from under the retailers and going, surprise, except that we all knew that this was actually coming. Um, this is a much bigger argument about you know, this is where we get into stuff about, well, will MBN need to be written down? Uh, can we expect a national broadband network to actually produce a commercial return? Um, and Andy's pretty much mirroring the sort of stuff we've seen from plenty of retailers in the sector. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, um, does the does the high cost of the MBN or, or some sort of special uh, high cost of the MBN mean that Australia is stuck with um, a high-priced broadband network forever? Oh, we 
economics says that we will be. Um, you know, we have a small population across a large area and this network is tasked with catering for all of the country. That's for all the people out running cattle stations, you know, so they've got, they've got a loss-making satellite business to cater for. Uh, MBN says they don't make much money on the um, fixed wireless network, if at all, uh, hence the cross-subsidies that are built into the network. Um, and if people are just going to compare the MBN cost to what goes on in Singapore or Korea or Japan, you know, which are much more denser populations, um, then of course we're going to pay more. Uh, similarly, if people turn and look at America and say, oh, but they pay much less in America, that's true, but they don't have the coverage that the NBN has. Uh, this is sort of, you know, if we're going to have a national network, uh, this is literally the price we pay for it. And it's interesting because um, uh, the, te the chairman of Telstra, John Mullen, also said at the AGM that uh, Telstra is the natural owner of the NBN long term and that they've set up a separate uh, infrastructure division to own it later on. So Andy Penn's comments could be seen as trying to talk the price of it down for when Telstra buys it. Yeah, well, I mean, th those comments made by the Telstra chair, I mean, that's... You know, that that is pretty much goes back to crimes committed by previous governments in uh, not busting up the Telstra monopoly decades ago. Uh, you know, they sold off a giant behemoth and it, you know, behaves like a giant behemoth because it had all the um, infrastructure, it had all the ducks and stuff for years. Um, and it does, you know, anybody that looks at this sort of stuff does see that this infraco that Telstra has set up probably is going to be the natural home of where the NBN ends up. Um, it doesn't seem, you know, the current political parties don't seem to have any taste for wanting to keep NBN on the books um, long term. They, they, they really don't want to bring it into the budget because that's pretty much a great way to blow out your uh, budget top line by tens of billions of dollars the year that you do. So, yeah, we probably at some point in the next decade, InfraCo and NBN probably will become one and it cost us somewhere in the order of 70, 80 billion to do what should have been done in the 90s. I've been doing some back of the envelope calculations, Chris, on what the NBN might be worth. Um, the, uh, the, it, the government's equity is 29.5 billion, which is <clears throat> you know, sort of maximum and stand and, and uh, what it's going to stay at. And then the, the debt rises to $21.4 billion. I actually can't get a valuation for the NBN above the debt of $21.4 billion. I reckon it's possible the equity's worth zero. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that at all. Uh, you know, g g given the way that, you know, the whole thing's been structured and I can just imagine yeah. the sort of political blowback if it turns out that a uh, government of any stripe basically, uh, you know, even though economically it may sit there and go, well, you know, we can kind of get a minor premium and ship it off for, you know, five, ten billion dollars, but it's not going to play well in the electorate that uh, you've basically, yeah, the public will view it as recreating another Telstra, it, even though the structural separation will finally be complete after decades of governments not doing it. Just on another subject, Chris, I think the, um, there's been some developments in the encryption debate. What has the Information Commissioner come up with? So the Information Commission has basically called for more transparency, more judicial oversight, but the really good idea that they've put forward is the idea of putting a sunset clause in this legislation. 
And the idea they're putting forward is give this thing three years. Let's see how it goes. Then it has to go back to the parliament. It just can't sit there and just roll on forever, working, not working. So, for instance, the metadata retention that we've got now, uh, that's mostly used for drug cases, it turns out. It's not used so much for the stopping terrorist pedophile sort of stuff that the politicians were talking about. Um, what, what the Information Commission is putting forward, I think, is a really good idea, and they should do it. Um, the Commissioner also wants them to pretty much spell out exactly what sort of things they can get into, and if anything's added to this list, have it go through Parliament. Um, and anything that basically gets stuff into the public, gets it onto the floor of Parliament, I think it's a really good idea to get these ideas out there discussed and let us know exactly what's going on inside this uh, legislation. It does seem like the debate is coming down to not, not, about, um, not about the existence of a backdoor, uh, but the transparency of it, would that be reasonable? Yeah, and a lot of it is that the fact that, so there's three sorts of notices, two are compulsory, one is voluntary. Now, the compulsory ones have uh, at least some minimal oversight, and a lot of people are saying that should, be a, that should be ramped up to judicial oversight. Now, with the voluntary ones, the thing is, is that the companies can't say no, I mean, hence them being voluntary, but it looks like the way that it's kind of structured is that the, company, um, the interception agencies will basically throw out these uh, voluntary notices. And if companies don't want to be seen fighting the government, they very easily could just agree to do stuff that's actually restricted in the, uh, the other two compulsory notices. So we're seeing a lot of submissions of people saying, you've got to have protections for all this stuff. Uh, you've got the Inspector General of the Intelligence Services saying, if you, get, if you do this sort of stuff, I need to get access to this stuff to know what the security agencies are up to as well. So everybody's basically saying, you've got to give us more information to what's going on. Good on you, Chris. Thank you. No worries. Cheers, Alan. Happy birthday, Tom Petty. He was born 68 years ago on Saturday, although he died last year on the 2nd of October, unfortunately. So he is learning to fly to remember him by. Well, it started out Down a dirty road Started out All alone And the sun went down Across the hill And the town lit up The world got still I'm learning to fly But I ain't got wings Coming down Is the hardest thing That's all from me. Have a great week.